Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we have our 13th True Crime Digest. Oh, number 13. It's not extra spooky, but it is extra sad. It is. Yeah, unfortunately, but we've been doing it a while. So the first one actually is a little bit older of a missing persons case, but the individual who's missing, his sister reached out to us to try to get his story out there. So we wanted to help her out and hopefully get some information for this poor family. Yeah. So his name is Joseph Michael Bullduk, and he was last seen on August 26th of 2017 in Goodyear, Arizona. And something interesting that she had told us is Daniel Robinson's father, David, who we've spoken about many times, has also been sharing his story. That's kind. It's very kind. We've talked about that a lot where, you know, people going through the worst are often the ones that help the most. Yeah. So Joe was 55 and he was a resident of Buckeye, which also in Arizona, when he went missing after a routine traffic stop. He was leaving the Love's truck stop at the time and got pulled over. His Jeep was impounded for expired registration tags and lapsed auto insurance. They also confiscated his Arizona driver's license. And we were told that it came up suspended in the system as an automatic consequence of the tags insurance situation. I didn't know that that happens. I didn't know that. I know that like, say you don't do some type of administrative thing for your car, it can have other consequences. Like, say you don't get your emissions done, like they can suspend your registration. Yeah, right, right. I just didn't know for tax and like the auto insurance you have to have separately anyways. I didn't even know that they talked. So the family was able to review the body cam footage from that evening. And it's two different officers' perspectives, and they're each about 45 minutes long. Interestingly, five total officers showed up for this traffic stop. That's a lot of officers. That's strange. Yeah. Unless something was weird about it, right? Like, I don't see a reason for that many officers to show up. His family says that he was super cooperative and he was very polite. Also that he was crying and expressed profound feelings of depression to one of the officers. His sister said it reminded her of the Gabby Petito footage, which breaks my heart. She wishes that they had contacted his family to let him know how he was doing. And I don't know if that's something that they commonly do, but I could see it if someone was like very upset. They go, you know, like, do you have someone to go home to? Is someone there that can help you? Who can we call? Just like generally, they should make sure there's somebody who can come pick you up. Right, right. That would be a question. We do not have this footage. So we're going off of what the family has told us. But I I don't know what they asked him, but it seems like something maybe what should have been asked. After Joe's Jeep was towed, the Tolleson police gave Joe a courtesy ride to Goodyear. They dropped him off at the corner of Estrella Parkway and Van Buren. When he got out of the car, he didn't have a phone. He didn't have water. He didn't have his identification. He didn't have money. And he didn't take anything else with him. This was shortly after midnight. And after he walked away, no one has reported seeing him again. So when we talk about it's bizarre that they didn't have someone come pick him up, it's really weird that they would just drop him off in a random place and then like know that he didn't have anything to get where he needed to go. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. And that, I'm looking at that intersection because it's not terribly far from where I am. And I don't know if that had anything around that time because a lot of these areas are still being developed. Per Google Earth, in August of 2016, it was Fields and then a Dunkin' Donuts and a Walgreens and what looks like perhaps like a shopping center that has a Bank of America in it. So there was some stuff there, but I don't think it was a place that made sense to drop him off. No, not at midnight. Yeah. And by 2018, this area looked, I mean, pretty much the same. So I don't think there was much difference. And we know this because on Google Earth, you can look at older times. I could pull up like back to 2008. Okay, so yeah, the next street over looks like that's where a lot of the fields are. But still, at midnight, most, I mean, a lot of Walgreens stores aren't open 24 hours here anymore. I don't really see anything that would have been up unless that hospital was still there. That might be something if he needed some sort of help. There's like a general hospital there. Yeah, but they would drop him off at the hospital, hopefully, right? Right. So it seems very strange that that's where they would have dropped him off. Like if they were doing a courtesy ride, it normally would have been what, to a family member's house or to his own home. And they didn't mention, like, his family didn't mention that that's where anyone that he knew lived. So just interesting. We will also share his information on our social media as well. Yeah. We don't often have the privilege to talk to family members. And as a general rule, we do not reach out to family members unless they reach out to us first, because we're not trying to re-traumatize anybody. If they reach out to us, it's a different story and we'll chat with them, of course. But in this situation, we did get to speak to Joe's sister and she talked about Joe and she said that he loves fishing, boats and NASCAR. According to Joe's NamUs profile, he was 55 when he went missing. So he would be 59 today. He was 5'10 and weighed about 155 pounds. His hair was brown, but it had spots of gray. He was clean shaven with brown eyes and wore glasses. He also at one point had a broken nose. And so... You can kind of see it. And a large round brown birthmark on his left thigh. So I I hope that we can help his family get some answers because that sounds like it would be scary, especially like when someone's dropped off in like a place that's not the middle of nowhere. Right, right. Why was he dropped off at that particular place too? It's more concerning because you're like, well, where did you go? So like I said, we're going to share his name as profile and his family would love if you also shared it. Yeah. So we have a little bit of an update for Daniel Robinson as well. And for his case, unfortunately, Daniel's father has paused the desert searches because of budgetary restraints. And he's planning to resume and re-strategize in the future, which is good. He's also working to find cadaver dogs to assist with the search. That makes my heart really sad. Yeah. One thing that I did see, because everyone knows I work with dogs, so I'm in a lot of like rescue groups for Arizona. And in one of the groups, it looked like one person was trying to put together a team to go help Daniel's father. So there's a lot of people behind the scenes trying to help, which is really good. And again, if you can help and you think that you can offer something to Daniel's father, you can go to pleasehelpfinddaniel.com and look for ways to help. Yeah, and we'll actually, we'll link to it in our show notes. I was also going to say I had reached out for the non-search volunteer sign up because I'm in Maryland, not Arizona. And what they want me to do is they are going to provide a list of businesses and they want me to research them to see how one would go about requesting them to donate. It's just looking at how their donation process works. Yeah. You know, if, if you have a little bit of extra time, even a few minutes, I feel like that's a thing a lot of people could do. 
So the more people, the better. It doesn't have to be big monumental things that you're doing, even if you have an extra 20 minutes. Yeah. A while ago, we talked about the Girl Scout murders. And just as the briefest refresher, in 1977, Lori Farmer, Michelle Gousset, and Denise Milner went to Girl Scout camp and they were horrifically murdered. It was tragic and haunting and disgusting. Just truly, truly terrible. When we talked about this case, we talked about like the fact that it was at a time when like they weren't doing notifications in the same way that they do now. So parents were finding out what happened to their kids from the news and they were having like other young people calling parents to tell them like what was going on. It was a mess. And there's a new documentary that actually just came out on the 24th of May called Keeper of the Ashes. And it's hosted by Kristen Chenoweth. It's interesting because she was eight years old and living in Mays County, Oklahoma, when these murders occurred. And she was planning on going on that camping trip. But she had gotten sick. So her mom said she couldn't go. That's crazy. Absolutely crazy. But it's kind of haunted her ever since. Yeah, it still hurts. Right. I would imagine that that would stick with a lot of people, especially she was the same age as the girls. She even went to the same school as Michelle. She didn't know her, but she said she like recognized her. Right. Like they knew of one another. The name of the documentary stems from a tradition that at the end of camp for the last bonfire, one girl would become the keeper of the ashes and she would she would take them home with her. Oh, and so like she's holding the ashes of like what happened and she wants to kind of dissect it. And there was some recent DNA testing. And originally we talked about the main suspect was Jean Leroy Hart. And the DNA test that came back was inconclusive. Right. But just because it's inconclusive doesn't mean it can't be helpful in any way. What it can do is eliminate suspects and it couldn't exclude Jean Leroy Hart. Yeah. So a lot of people are taking this as evidence that like it was definitely him, which interesting, but sad. I hope their parents are getting more closure. One of the things that I haven't gotten a chance to watch the documentary because it just came out. But I, when I was reading articles about it, they were talking about the girl's parents and how to them this happened yesterday. There's no world where it makes sense for you to send your kid out to a place where they should be safe and have fun. And then they're not. Yeah, we talk about that a lot nowadays. Well, tragic, and I I will have to watch that documentary. It sounds very sad, but interesting to get more details. Yeah. I also think it has a lot of interviews with a lot of people who were involved with the case. So I think hearing from their parents and getting, I just think, a fuller picture on like who these girls were. Like That's how you keep their legacy alive as you talk about them and not just what happened to them. Exactly. So we also do have an update on the Crystal Turner and Kylan Schulte murders. In mid-May, the Grand County Sheriff's Office released the news that they had a suspect for their murders. The person who they had suspected, however, has completed suicide in that time. His name was Adam Pinkasuix. And per the Sheriff's Office, he confessed to murdering Kylan and Crystal to a friend and then divulged details that had not been released. So that is interesting. I'm always now, from how many things that we've talked about, I'm always nervous to just go, oh, they confessed they did it, though. Right? Like, just because they had details doesn't mean that they weren't fed details. And I'm not saying he didn't do it. It's just I'm always, like, skeptical. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I'm with you. And also, it doesn't mean that you didn't just see the crime scene. Like, you could see the crime scene and not have done it. Right, right. He was in the LaSalle Mountains at the time of the murders, and the sheriff's office is not closing the case and are still processing new evidence, including Pinkasuik's 2007 Toyota Yaris. 
So you'll remember when we talked about this case initially, Cindy Sue Hunter was the one who found Kylan and Crystal's bodies. In an interview, she said that she was being considered as a suspect at one point, and they leaned on her pretty heavily. Police served her with a warrant for her phone and said that she was a suspect, obviously. They said her phone pinged up in the mountains, and she immediately was like, okay, well, that makes sense. I walked my dogs up there. Also, she said that she found them, right? Like, so she was there. Yeah, she she had been at the crime scene. Yeah. Yeah. And then law enforcement accused her of changing her story multiple times, but she said that she wasn't quite sure what they were talking about. They also said that it was suspicious that she took crime scene photos, which she took photos at the scene. I do not know whether I would think to do that. I mean, I think I would with my like true crime brain, but I think it's a hard thing to, to think about. But she posted them online. That is not okay. Also, all right. Let's talk about that. So why would someone take photos, right? First off, is in case something either disappears, which we know happens, something gets moved. Lots of reasons, right? Posting them online. The only reason I would ever post them online is if I was worried that someone was going to take my phone and I would lose those photos. Yes. Not that I'd do it like publicly. I would probably post them to a private thing that I could see them, but no one else could maybe. Yeah, I would like email them to myself or like put them on a Google Drive or something. I don't know where she posted them, but the article just said that she posted them. And Cindy said that she offered to provide the photos to law enforcement, but they said they didn't need them, which I think is interesting because I would be like anything and everything. Weird. Yeah, give us everything you have. Also, as a a little bit of an aside, but it's on the same path here that we're talking about, a billboard recently went up around that area that Dog the Bounty Hunter says that he's going to be investigating the murders of Kylan and Crystal. And Cindy notes it's awfully convenient that as soon as their investigation is about to get a little bit of scrutiny, they suddenly have a new suspect that can't defend themselves. What are the odds that right then they would find somebody, you know? Yeah, it sounds weird. But I think also we've seen so many cases like that where they point fingers at someone that can no longer give their side of the story. And then they're like, close case, we're done. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know who did it. Hopefully we'll get some more information. Hopefully there's something found that gives us a better picture of what actually happened to them. And so now we're going to talk about Jelani Day. And we've talked about him a couple times before. But just as a reminder, Jelani Day was living and going to school in Bloomington, Illinois. He was studying to be a doctor. He was last seen on campus on August 24th of 2021. And his car was found a few days later. His belongings were found in various places, and then his body was found a week later floating in the Illinois River. We have a few interesting updates, I guess. Some more details. We do know that Jelani's phone was found, and it was handed over to the FBI. However, some new details have come up this last month. First off, how his phone was found. So a man driving in Bloomington on I-55 had pulled over to the side of the road so that he could adjust his mattress that he had tied to the roof of his car. Sounds very dangerous. But while he pulled over, he found a shattered iPhone on the ground. So per Jelani's cell phone records, his phone was turned off at 9.21 a.m. Yeah. NBC5 got redacted law enforcement emails through a Freedom of Information Act request. And the extraction report says that he had 23 chats and 17 messages. There's also an email about six numbers of interest. And one of them said, quote, nothing crazy on Jelani's cell phone. Which I mean, I don't necessarily believe that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, and this is just my my thoughts is 
he didn't see it coming. So like, I don't know if there would be anything on the cell phone because it was probably just like a normal day for him, right? But we do know there's a lot of different reasons to point to something horrific happened to him and it wasn't just an accident. But per Jelani's mother, her name's Carmen, no one has come forward saying that they had even spoken to him other than his professor that we had mentioned in a previous episode. Yeah. Police have recovered a journal from Jelani's car as well. And there wasn't a suicide note in it. And the journal dated back to 2016 and only had two 2021 entries. I mean, I feel like that's how I journal sometimes where it's like just a little bit here and a little bit there. Yeah, that's fair. And remember, he was going to college and had a lot on his plate. So another thing that we have brought up before is the Jelani Day bill and that Senate bill 3932 and it has been signed into law. And per this bill in Illinois, the coroner or medical examiner must notify the FBI when human remains are not identified within 72 hours of the remains being discovered, which is fantastic. I don't know why that wasn't the case before. But that's good news. All around, I'm glad that this bill passed and was signed into law. I do think it's kind of sad that it took this to get that like extra step put in. Yeah, I agree. I think it's vital. It is vital. And I feel like it's silly that we, we weren't doing things like that. Like, why not put all of this information in one area where it's easy to find, oh, we're missing this person. This county has this body. Perhaps they may be the same person. Exactly. So the next case that we're going to talk about is the death of Taryn Summers, I'd say at the hands of Connie Ann Smith. We've been talking about this case, I believe, since our third True Crime Digest. And so it's been a minute since we've done a refresher. So we're gonna, I'm just going to briefly go over the basis of this case was. So in the fall of 2020, Connie Ann Smith reported her granddaughter, Taryn Summers, missing. So from what we read, it seemed as though while police were searching, she was acting very strange. Like, for example, there was a car on the property when they were like, we'd like to search this car. She's like, I can't find the keys. And then when they're looking around, it's they find that the keys have been like tossed on top of some furniture. That's bizarre. And so they then searched that car, which was a black Lexus. And that's where they found the remains of Taryn in a trash bag on the backseat floor. So fucking disgusting. Just awful. Connie Ann Smith pled guilty to felony injury to a child and felony failure to notify authorities of death. And so here's the thing. Really, the only case facts we knew was that she was found. They had removed some pieces of evidence from the house, but they didn't talk about what had happened to her, which I mean, it may, I understand why, but we didn't we just didn't really hear a lot about it or what life was like with Connie. And so although she had pled guilty, you know, there's certain like procedural things that have to happen. And one of those things, including sentencing. But Eric Thompson, the Jim County prosecutor, detailed what he called a horrific crime. And he talks about some of the case facts for the very first time. So the pathologist that performed the autopsy on Taryn said that they couldn't determine the exact cause of death because there were too many issues. At the time of her death, Taryn, who again was just eight years old, had pneumonia, was severely dehydrated, and she had suffered a blunt force trauma to her head. Also, the pathologist diagnosed her as having failed to thrive. And I'd never heard that terminology before. But what it means is that when a child is way smaller than they should be for their age, they're diagnosed with failure to thrive. In this situation, they think it was from her being malnourished. It's horrible. Poor baby. Exactly. Exactly. It's unforgivable. Taryn hadn't been to the doctor for two years and she wasn't attending school. Who dropped the ball there? You know, like, why didn't anyone notice that? 
Exactly. And so we talked about in our original episode that Smith had other children under her care that she was going to pick up from school that day. And Taryn was in the back sleeping. And it's thought now that she was probably dying when she was in that backseat. Smith's son, David Summers, was watching Taryn a couple days before she died. And so I don't know if this is Taryn's father or perhaps her uncle because it looked last names, right? I don't know how that family tree works. But he texted his mother to ask if he could give Taryn some Pepto-Bismol because she wasn't feeling well. Smith's response was, no, I'm on my way. About 45 minutes later, David texts her back and says, what you're doing isn't helping mom. She's getting worse. I know you feel like she's just being a shit, but either you got to do things drastically different. It has to change if it's not too late. If this was anyone other than you, I'd be making a call, mom. Like she's in a condition that if someone else saw her and called, I'd be fucked too. And it's not good for you either. What you are all doing is killing both of you. It's horrible. Let me just tell you, I don't give a fuck how badly a child is behaving. There is no excuse for any type of harm against a child. No, not at all. What, what could she do that was so wrong? Talk back? She's so small that she has failed to thrive. She's that tiny. She's dehydrated. What could she possibly do to you? Exactly. Exactly. They There's not much they can do at eight. Yeah. And it pisses me off that someone else saw her in a terrible condition and chose not to act. Fuck her. Yeah. And so Smith claims that she isn't the monster that everyone's making her out to be, but that she does regret her actions. And I'm like, fuck you. Like, you are a monster. You can do this to a kid. You're a monster. Yeah. This poor little girl. So Judge Jean Petty sentenced Smith to five years fixed and 15 years indeterminate. Not long enough. Not long enough. At Smith's sentencing hearing, Taryn's brother, Tristan, said, All you had to do was love us and take care of us. What was so wrong with us that you mistreated us and abused us? That I'll never understand. And that poor boy has lost two sisters. Yeah. We, we talked about this, too, but their other sibling died in an accidental drowning. And Tristan and the middle sister, Taylor, had run away from Connie. I'm presuming because she was abusive. Right. So another one of their family members, Daryl, said, You caused the death of Taryn. Taryn was malnourished. She was tormented. And she lived in fear every day in your care. You took away her dignity. You never allowed her to flourish into the beautiful girl she was. Sad. Yeah. It's absolutely heartbreaking. I'm glad that there's some reckoning happening for Connie, but I I just think not enough. No, not at all. And like, so she had custody of all of these children, right? Or she was caring for all of these children. And, you know, half of them are gone. She's picking some up from school. And like, why was it just Taryn that was targeted in this way? You can't go to school. You can't go to the doctor. But these ones can go to school. Yeah, from the context that I'm getting, it said like she was misbehaving in some way. I've heard of other terrible cases of child abuse where one child just happens to be, for whatever reason, the one that's abused. Like the other ones aren't doing great, but they're not suffering the same situation. Right, right. I was looking at like one of her obituaries and there's like a little comment section and one of her teachers that she did have prior, you know, before she stopped going to school had commented in the little comment section and it just broke my heart because she was loved, right? Like there were people that did love and care about her and she just happened to be with this monster. But her birthday would have been May 25th and she would have been 10 years old. So last month and something that I noticed just on her birthday, I was like, oh my gosh, not only is would it have been her 10th birthday, it also would have been JJ Vallow's 10th birthday. 
So they shared the same birthday. That's so incredibly sad. Yeah. Yeah. And then her and her sister, so we talked about Taylor briefly, they both had a combined service on April 30th. And it was streamed, it looked like. So it is available online. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking, yeah. I feel like there's more that needs to be done in cases like this, because especially when there's multiple people that knew, you know, like, I I don't blame the kids. The kids were trying to do their best. But like, there were adults that knew what was happening and didn't do the right thing. Well, the son. Yeah. Yeah, the son who said, like, if somebody found her in this state, I'd be in trouble too. Why is he not in trouble too? He saw what was happening. And frankly, her failure to act on behalf of Taryn, to me, is worse than the things that she was charged with. I I don't think she was charged severely enough. No, not at all. Not at all. The state of how she was does not happen by accident and over a short period of time. No, no. And I mean, that makes sense. So if she hadn't seen a doctor or gone to school in years. So that was years of abuse. Disgusting. Well, if anything else comes up from that case, of course, we'll we'll update it in our next True Crime Digest. But as of now, at least, you know, she can't do it to any other kids. So we do have a couple small updates in regard to the shopping cart killer as well. So as the briefest recap, the deaths of four women have been tied to Anthony Robinson, who has been dubbed the shopping cart killer. He has this particular moniker because he transferred his victim's remains via shopping cart. And his victims were Tonita Smith, Aline Elizabeth Redman, or she went by Beth, Stephanie Harrison, Sonia Champ, and Cheyenne Brown. As far as the autopsies go, the Virginia State Medical Examiner was unable to determine Beth or Tonita's cause of death. The cause of deaths were ruled homicides, though, not surprising. And law enforcement does not believe that not having a specific cause of death for Beth and Tonita will weaken their case against the suspect, Anthony Robinson. So that's good news. Now, when we first did our episode on the shopping cart killer, one of the victim's sisters reached out to us, and it was Stephanie Harrison's sister, Joey Dior, and she had responded to one of our tweets. So I wanted to read that. I thought it was sad, but important to know. She said, the Reading police came up with their own narrative for my sister. Reading police said my sister did not want to be contacted. We, the family, told them that that was never the case and that she would never not contact her grandkids. I gave them where she stayed and other places. They did nada. I had to put my sister into NamUs and then wait on the Reading Police Department to approve it. It took almost seven days to be approved. That's not okay. Reading Police Department told me that they could not access my sister's phone. They did nothing for her. They have gross negligence. My sister was in the wrong place, wrong time. That hurts my heart. I'm so sorry that she had to go through that. She had to be the one to do some of this work. And you would think because it's a tool to help the police, right? Like NamUs should help the police that they would want to get that done as fast as possible. Yeah, I I really do agree with you. I think that in that week span, a lot of things could have happened. And if it takes a public shaming for police to do their jobs in some semblance of a reasonable fashion. Right. Well, I don't understand why it would take so long to be approved. Like, it's a tool to help them. Exactly. Just you're making your life harder. Exactly. By not helping this poor family. Yeah. Awful. Well, as this case progresses, we will update you. So we're going to move on to our new cases for today. We just have two. And the first one we're going to talk about, it's actually a woman who we don't know her name. This happened in Chicago, Illinois. And Antoine Debine, a community activist, heard a woman screaming from a home that had been abandoned for at least a month 
on South Eggleston Avenue in the south side of Chicago. And I've seen articles that talk about another neighbor having said that the house had been abandoned for at least 25 years and that there are lots of abandoned houses in that neighborhood. That's crazy. Yeah. So Antoine called police because he heard this woman screaming. And when they arrived, they found a woman with her hands cuffed and her legs chained to the wall. She said that she was walking to a nearby store when she encountered her abductor, who she had met before, and that he was in his 60s. She accidentally bumped into him. And as she was walking away, he said, you know what? Come here for a minute. And then he basically grabbed her and took her to this abandoned home. He took her to the basement first and then took her to the attic where he raped her twice. Horrible. She'd been there for four to five days before police arrived. However, fortunately, she was released from the hospital on Sunday, May 22nd, in good condition. And really, the only things we know about her are that she was 36 years old and that she was experiencing homelessness. A neighbor, Patricia Parnell, said that this woman was very kind and very sweet and that she would often talk to her and give her food and water, like that she was like a good human, which is heartbreaking. Yeah, sweet person. So Antoine was waiting outside while police were coming. And he has a Facebook Live where he's like showing the outside of the house and he shows police coming up. And he started recording, though, after he had saw a person run from the house before police got there. And so he could describe like his stature and the fact that he was shorter than him. And he, he described his clothing, but he wasn't able to give a lot of detail on any unique physical features that would, I think, really make him stand out. Yeah. So, but yeah, really, really awful and really, really terrifying. Well, it's horrible because that neighborhood seems like it was kind of tight knit too, right? Like they knew the people that like came in and out of that neighborhood and like who the regular people were. Yeah. So it's like this person probably was watching her for a while, is my guess. Like he also knew the ways of the neighborhood, when she might be back. and Well, she'd met him before. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, he also might know that she was experiencing homelessness, too. And we know from Samuel Little that women who are experiencing homelessness are often preyed upon and the th terrible things that happen to them without somebody pressing, unless they have a live victim, nobody's doing anything. Right. And even if they have a live victim, they might not be doing anything. So I, I hope she's okay. I hope that she is able to have the support that she needs to heal from this and that they find him. Right. I'm glad she's okay. Like, I know that's traumatic and horrible that it took days for someone to find her, but I am happy that she is okay. Yeah, me too. And we have one last new case that we haven't covered before. And it's a very uh, interesting one. I've seen this one shared quite a bit this last month. So the case is the murder of Daniel Brophy. And on May 25th, a woman named Nancy Crampton Brophy, who's 71 years old, was found guilty of second degree murder in the shooting of her husband, Daniel Brophy. The interesting part is that she wrote like a blog essay post in 2011 titled How to Murder Your Husband. A little obvious. A little obvious. It's a very, very interesting read. We will talk about it at the end. So she also wrote several romance novels. And on Amazon, some of them are available for free. I was trying to figure out like what did she normally write about on Amazon. It says that she also wrote technical writings for HR departments. Gotta pay them bills. But just how, like, ironic is it that she helped HR departments, wrote a thing called How to Murder Your Husband, and then murdered her husband. Maybe that was her sample writing piece. I don't know. So, of course, this is, you know, a pretty popular story right now. It's being shared quite a bit. Daniel Brophy was 63, and they had been married for 26 years. It's really sad. Yeah. Daniel was found shot to death in June of 2018. 
and he had gunshot wounds to his back and his chest. He was found outside the Oregon Culinary Institute in Portland, and that's where he worked as a chef and an instructor. So this kind of like gives me Lori Vallow vibes in a way, just based off of how she notified people. So she decided to post on Facebook the following day after his death. And she said, quote, for my Facebook friends and family, I have sad news to relate. My husband and best friend, chef Dan Brophy, was killed yesterday morning. For those of you that are close to me and feel this deserved a phone call, you are right. But I'm struggling to make sense of everything right now. You don't tell people that somebody that they loved died on Facebook. You call a person and then you say, I can't do this. And then they call everyone. Exactly. Yeah. Like, (laughs) you don't just duck the fuck out, my girl. No. And the reason it reminds me of uh, Lori Vallow is because remember how she contacted Charles's kids? Yeah. Via text message. Also, you should never find anything really, truly important about somebody who you love out on social media, in my opinion. Like, if it's worth knowing, knowing, you should know in a different form. Right, right. Like, if that person's, like, important, important in your life. Especially, yeah, his friends and family finding out that way is disgusting. Yeah. So Nancy had been arrested a couple months later in September. So during her trial, her writing on how to kill your husband couldn't be used as evidence. But prosecutors instead focused on a large life insurance payout that she was going to gain after his death. And we're thinking it was approximately $1.5 million. We've seen that there's multiple policies. Witnesses testified that the couple were having money troubles when he died. And there's also surveillance footage that shows Nancy driving to and from the crime scene, but she claimed she had been in bed. During the trial, she said she couldn't remember driving the morning of the murder and blamed it on tiredness and getting up at 4.30 each morning for the trial. Oh, that poor thing. My gosh. You don't murder your husband. You won't have to go to court. And she uh, was no criminal mastermind. Let's just say that. She was no Chad DeBall. No Chad DeBall. Her uh, computer had research on how to buy an untraceable ghost gun. So just like quick little Google search. And if you don't know what that is, like I, I had an idea. I hadn't actually Googled it, which now I'm showing up on many reports. Mike said he's scared. <laughs> but it's a gun that's unserialized and untraceable. And it's usually bought online and assembled at home. It can be sold in what's called ghost gun kits. They're widely available and can be purchased by anyone without a background check. And this is absolutely disgusting and horrific. And I hate everything about it. Yeah, I'm just like, I did not grow up in a house with guns. I just categorically do not understand the intensity to which people feel connected to them and the desire to own them. Like, there's no argument that makes sense in my head. But especially if we can't trace them. Right. They're untraceable. That is not okay. And I, yeah, as I was doing my searches, I was just like, this is too easy and this needs to be handled. Because we've said it, you know, like, especially with what's happening in today's world and what happened just recently. It's way too fucking easy. Yeah, it absolutely is. So from there, prosecutors alleged that she called detectives asking for a letter clearing her as a suspect so that she could collect on a $40,000 insurance policy. That's pretty brazen. Right? It's just, hey, uh, I need the money, guys. So like, can you let me not be a suspect? Get in the get, my guys. The couple had spent more than $1,000 on various life insurance policies at the time when they couldn't even pay their mortgage. So that stands out. They're not paying bills, but they're opening life insurance policies. I just want to point that out again, that she's 71. 
So she is to be sentenced on June 13th, and she could serve anywhere from 25 to life. Good. I don't know if she'll have 25, though. I don't think so. So let's talk about her blog post slash essay, How to Murder Your Husband. Yeah, and it's not available anymore, but there are some archived websites that have it. The internet has your back. It does. So we're going to read some quotes and then paraphrase other parts. So this is a direct quote. As a romantic suspense writer, I spend a lot of time thinking about murder and consequently about police procedure. After all, if the murder is supposed to set me free, I certainly don't want to spend any time in jail. And let me say clearly for the record, I don't like jumpsuits and orange isn't my color. The irony. Right. You know, lucky for her, I don't think where she's being held right now. I mean, it could change, but... I want to say she's wearing blue or like a teal. Maybe that's what changed it. She was like, I don't have to wear orange. Yeah. So throughout her prose, she she talks about like several things to think about. And we're not going to read it all verbatim. But so she talks about motives. Financial. Because divorce is costly. And why would you want to split your stuff? And then here's my favorite. If you married for money, why should you have to share? And in, in all caps in our outline, I wrote, with the person who earned the money. Yeah, she's delusional. Yeah. If it is for money, you have to be careful. And then she has, quote, husbands have disappeared from cruise ships before. Why not yours? Like, the whimsy in this article is shocking, considering, like, she did it. Right, right. I mean, this is years before, but still. Still, she's clearly thinking about it. She's been thinking about it for a while. It's been mulling around in there. So another motive would be that he is a liar and then she calls that person a cheating bastard and then basically says deception of any sort. And she talks about that when you murder because the person has like wronged you in this way, that it's generally more messy. It's easier to trace back to you because you're like frenzied. Another motive would be that you fell in love with someone else. And she says, if your religion says you can't get divorced, then just make yourself a widow. And I'm just like... That has to be a no-no, too. Like, it has to be a no-no, right? Like, if you can't divorce, then you probably shouldn't kill your spouse. And then she says another motivation would be if they were abusive. And she says, but this usually comes up as self-defense because you don't call the police after you murder your husband if they were abusive to you. And then her last motive was that you're already a professional killer and you just got to get your payment up first. Oh, yeah, those uh, professional killers are definitely reading her blog posts. Uh, For sure. They need the tips. They need the tricks. So here are some other things that Brophy says to consider. Murder weapons. So she basically weighs out, like, the loudness of guns, the bloodiness of knives, the, you know, what could be around you and poison. And then she says, unless you happen to already have a good relationship with a hitman, she suggests, like, you shouldn't hire one because they're rats. And then she also heavily suggests not hiring your lover as your hitman because it gets messy. Oh, good, good, good. Quote, I find it's easier to wish people dead than to actually kill them. I don't want to worry about blood and brains splattered on my walls. And I'm not really good at remembering lies. And then she can't remember. She proved that. (laughs) Like, girl. It's not funny. Like, someone did die. But my goodness. It's not funny, but it's like she's just out here calling herself out. Yeah. What if the killing didn't produce the right results, she said? Would they do it again? Could they do it again? What if they liked it? This is really making me feel like this was not her first kill, by the way. Like, maybe. I mean, uh, that's what she wrote about a lot. It looked like it was like romance, like uh, 
like sexy murder mystery type novels i don't know like you could look at the, her amazon it's weird i don't think i want to i don't want to adjust my algorithm <laughs> one thing though i did want to say is she shot her husband right in in her writing she put guns loud messy requires some skill if it takes 10 shots for the sucker to die Either you have terrible aim or he's on drugs. I don't know. I just, I'm going to, all I have to say is the last thing that I wrote in our outline, which is literally what the fuck, Nancy? No criminal mastermind. Wild. Wild to me. Yeah. We'll definitely continue to uh, update on this case as it continues. Yeah. I'd be interested to see if there's more of her writings that come up, kind of show her hand, if you will. Right. Well, this this blog post was on something called See Jane Publish, and there were other ones from her. I just wanted to only find this one. You weren't going to read everything she's ever written? I wasn't. I wasn't going to read everything from uh, Nancy because she... I mean, obviously, she's bad at it. So I don't see the professionals really taking any uh, information away from her. I also, I'm just suspect when your books are free. Yeah, there's a few books. And not because, like, they're at a library. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to purchase any of her content. So, like, her other writings were The Wrong Husband and The Cover. Hold on. Is that a boat? Okay. Is that a boat? <laughs> or a ship? I don't know. Uh <laughs> You've already forgotten your lessons. <laughs> I can't see. The wrong husband's over the ship boat. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to see. She also wrote like how to write, like plotting your story arc. And not only was there the wrong husband, but there's the wrong brother too. Oh, it's a series. Oh my goodness. Man, there's a lot. <laughs> when that sunk in, it was just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. <laughs> Hell on the Heart, which is Shadow Men, book one. The wrong hero. Oh, there's a lot of wrong people. I forgot. Okay. Yeah. The wrong cop. And this guy's just shirtless, shirtless, wearing sunglasses with a gun. Romance novel covers are always just like heavily uncomfortable. Ooh, the wrong seal. The wrong, like, like a seal seal or Navy seal? I'm assuming Navy seal. It has dog tags. I was hoping it was a seal seal. <laughs> Me too. And it says small towns hide the biggest secret. Man, this woman, she's something. That is certainly a phrasing for what she is. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, interesting story. As uh, more happens with it, we will update you. And please do not give her any money. Yeah, yeah. Don't. No money for her. Well, that about wraps up our 13th True Crime Digest. So have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod.com on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. Thank you for listening to True Creeps.